Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, Owen Mitchell podcast. I'm here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. Uh, my name is Ian Toft, and I'm a partner in the workplace illness team based in Leeds and Newcastle. Um, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by some esteemed colleagues and guests. First of all, I'd like to welcome Michaela Morris. Uh, Michaela is also from Owen Mitchell and she's a client support manager. Uh, Michaela's background is that she was an occupational therapist and she also worked in hospices and mental health. Uh, she prides herself on the fact that she's very creative. Uh, she enjoys seeing friends, family and being in nature. When she was a child, she was told by her headmistress that she would make a great prison officer. I'm really pleased that she's decided to become a client support manager. Hi, Ian. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Uh, the second uh, guest is also somebody uh, who's a, an experienced healthcare professional. That's Simon Bolton from our charity partner, Mesothelioma UK. Uh, Simon is a clinical nurse specialist for asbestos-related cancer patients in West North Yorkshire and in the East Riding. Um, Simon's worked with lung cancer and MISO patients for about 20 years. Simon, like me, grew up in the 1970s. Um, in a, a previous question and answer, when asked about what other career path he would have pursued, he said if he hadn't have been a nurse, he'd have been an astronaut. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for that introduction, Ian. Yeah, I'd like to think that I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. I was, uh, uh, there's photographs of me with a, uh, a bucket on my head. My dad um, put the front out of a bucket and sprayed it silver and sent me to the Queen's Silver Jubilee dressed as Neil Armstrong. Thanks, Simon. Finally, and uh, most importantly, we're joined by uh, Ron Snaith. Ron is uh, a client of Owen Mitchell, and Ron's been living with mesothelioma since 2018. Welcome, Ron. I'm oh, glad to be here. I'd like, if if we could, Ron, just to talk a little bit about your background and how you were exposed to asbestos in the in the 1970s. Yes, again, I've started uh, life in the shipyards on the Tyne. Uh, served my time as an apprentice joiner, um, and then I went from Swan Hunters to Cleland's Small Ships Division. Um, so I learned my trade there, um, and I was, I'm not big-headed, but uh, I was one of the better ones. So I become a model maker, um, setter out, key man, uh, and was uh, involved in everything in the shipyard. Uh, launching platforms, etc. Uh, unfortunately, that's where I've um, used quite a bit of um, asbestos-based products, um, and not known at the time what, what effect it would have have on us at this time of in life. How does it make you feel, looking back now at your sort of working life in the shipyard, to think that the work and the substances that you were exposed to then led to you then developing mesothelioma? I think looking back, uh, I had a young family and I volunteered to do anything that uh, attracted a, a, a tanana or an extra, um, which anything that was horrible, uh, you, you made extra money for. So we worked out of hours, um, you know, cutting and 
fashioning things, tidying everything up um, without even, we didn't even think about it then. And I've lost um, me, me workmate through it. And we'll sweep her up. They've both died with me as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a tragedy to think that you and lots of other individuals were effectively poisoned many, many years ago when you were working with this deadly dust. Um, I wonder, and I know it's a difficult thing to, to talk about, Ron, I wonder if we could touch on the initial meeting that you had when you received your diagnosis and the impact that that had on you and your family. And I, I also think it would be good to hear from Simon on how he, as a healthcare professional, how they meet the challenges of that diagnosis meeting with patients and healthcare professionals. And, and also to bring Michaela in then about that emotional impact. It was um, Denise's birthday, actually, uh, 21st of December, where I got the results at the Kiwi. Uh, my sister and Denise were there. And when when you're told, you, you just think your, your life was gone. It's the end of your life, really. It's so devastating, even though I did have an idea that it could be that. Uh, there's nothing can prepare you for getting the news, especially me as well. Um, and when you think you're given three to nine months to live, it's like a standard uh, from that point. Uh, and I was coming up to five years since, in fact, it's this week since I knew I had a problem. Simon, what's what's your take on those those diagnosis meetings? It's so difficult for any healthcare professional to have to share that information. But in saying that, we are all trained to deliver that information in 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 the best possible way that we can. And there is a a study called Radio Meso, which is all about receiving a diagnosis of mesothelioma. That 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 study was undertaken by the Mesothelioma UK Research Centre team at the University of Sheffield. And the, the, there's there's ten top tips within that study for any healthcare professional in in how they should approach this, how how they should well where they should see people at what time they should see them so if you've got a really busy clinic and you're under a lot of pressure you don't want to be squeezing an appointment like when ron comes into clinic he doesn't want to feel as though he's he's got a five minute slot right in the middle of a, a load of other difficult cases and and so um yeah i think it's there's a lot more that we as healthcare professionals can do to prepare ourselves so that we can give the right information to somebody like Ron and also offer some hope as well. We know that sadly this is an incurable condition. We know what the average prognosis is, but we can see Ron is not an average person. And so why we continue to group people into these averages and start quoting figures like six to nine or nine to 12 month. It, it, it really depends 
what you read and who you see. Um, but I would encourage any healthcare professional to try and move away from talking about average length of survival at, at, the, at that first meeting uh, and really focus on the positives that this is a cancer where we have seen some changes in recent years. Just in the last um, 12, 14 months alone, we've got access to immunotherapy. That's our first line of treatment now in mesothelioma. So sharing this information and, put, and trying wherever possible to put a positive slant, um, I think is, is something that all healthcare professionals should be looking um, to do. Michaela, um, what do you think that we as lawyers and also the support that you provide our clients can help with that, that diagnosis piece after they've been told they've got a life-limiting disease, but there is the option of them pursuing a claim? I think it's really important initially to listen um, as to how they're dealing with that news. It is, you know, huge news. Um, I fortunately, I think both during the pandemic and since, it's not always delivered in a supportive environment. Um, there are still people being told by letter or by telephone. Um, and I know Simon works enormously hard with many other health professionals to recognise that this is just not appropriate. I think also, as well as the shock, um, I see a lot of people with a huge amount of anger. You know, I've not been a smoker, I eat well, I've worked hard, I've played hard, you know, and this is my employer's fault. So that anger. So I think in those in early meetings with a legal team for a potential claim is to listen to where they're at, because actually legal claim is stressful. It can also be very supportive. Um, obviously, you know, we aim to give that high level of support. But we also need to recognise where they are and at what rate they can hear the information, because, you know, you're dealing with a, a very tricky illness. You've got all the questions about treatment options. You've got all the financial worries. And then if you've got a case on top, you really need to sort of see who else is involved and at what rate people want information and to make decisions. So, yeah, working. And I mean, we're really lucky that we can work with you know, Simon and his colleagues and the support groups like Reedley in the Northeast, where we're all, you know, helping that person come to terms with the diagnosis. And as a sort of corollary to that point, and to just to widen it out a bit, both with Ron and Simon, is the impact that that has on the, the wider family. I mean, Ron's talked about his immediate family being present, and I'm sure Simon has come across many instances where it's not just the patient who's in that room. How do we how do we deal with that communication and that impact that it has on the family? That's one for for Ron and Simon really to comment on. Yeah, you're right, Ian. Um, when I when I told my daughter uh, on that night, uh, she went on the internet and read about all about it. She says she phoned us up and said. Dad, tell us it's not mesothelioma. I said, I'm sorry, but that's what it is. And she just broke down. I still remember the call. Because, uh, you know, the internet isn't always right. It's only for, you know, a broad um, spectrum of the disease. 
but I, mean, I was I was one of the lucky ones. Um, at that same meeting, I was offered a, a chance to go on the Mars Two trial, and that was a glimmer of hope straight away. I mean, when Ron, whenever I see a, a new client, the first thing I do is say, please, please don't go on the internet and start googling. What you need to do is speak to people like Simon, the healthcare professionals, your oncologist, your respiratory physician. Don't go anywhere near the internet because it's, you know, it's, I think it's quite dangerous. Yeah. I don't know if Simon would agree with that. Yeah, I think it's a, another responsibility of healthcare professionals who in the past would have given out patient information leaflets. Um, we still do that, but also we, we should at a very early point in time be giving out information to signpost you to, to reliable um, internet sites. Um, so sites like Mesothelioma UK, um, all of the information on there is, um, is written by Mesothelioma UK nurses like myself it's it's reliable it's up to date and it 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 balances things out as well so again it's really important to offer that hope so that you're not just delving in to a website that talks about all of the harsh realities of 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 this disease um but, but doesn't really offer that hope in terms of what's there uh, from support from healthcare professionals, from legal professionals like yourselves, um, all the different changes in 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 treatment options. And it's interesting to hear Ron was uh, on the Mars Two trial. We're actually um, days away from getting the results of of Mars Two, and depending on what those results show, that may mean that we we have another line of ammunition. Um, that we that we can start to use more. So things are 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 changing, but certainly we we need people to um, get to the right websites. Yeah, I mean, my impression. I mean, I'm not a, a clinical expert. Is that this? It's still very fluid in terms of the treatment options that are available to mesothelioma patients, and things seem to be certainly seem to have accelerated a lot more in the last few years. So, uh, just a final comment from Michaela, really, on on this particular point. Yeah, I think um, you're so right, Ron, that it you know has a huge impact on your family, as you described your daughter there. Um, and I think it's recognising also that people deal with it in a different way. Some people want to know everything. Some people don't want to know anything. Um, and I think within a family, different people can deal with it in different ways. And we're really lucky to be able to, you know, refer them on for counselling or support from Maggie centres or the support groups and recognising that within a family, there'll be all different sort of demands and reactions and emotions and you know that's why we're here if i could just add about support for family members as well i think groups like readley uh, and and i run a similar group um called mesothelioma support yorkshire or messy um and i think the beauty of all of those groups is that they bring people like ron and others who have been diagnosed with this condition it brings them together and you can share experiences um, but also people often go along to groups like that with their family members so as well as bringing people who are directly impacted 
by this diagnosis together. It brings their family members together. I see a lot of, um, at the moment, I actually have quite a lot of ladies um, coming to the support group. And so it brings their husbands who become their carers, it brings them together and, and they can talk and share experiences as well. So groups yeah. like that are so important. I think that's really important. And it, the the mysterioma support groups are, are, are nationwide, and the, the ones that we have particular involvement in are, as Simon says, Reedley and and the Messy group in West Yorkshire. So, I think from my perspective, Ron, what would be interesting to hear is um, how have you found the support that you've been given by your local Miso support group and by the Miso nurses that you work with in the northeast, Leah, Joanne, and and Helen. Uh, well, and I was pointed to Reedley, although it didn't have the same name at that time. Uh, and I went up to Stanikin in Morbeth and met um, Sam and Joe and some others. Um, and that was like a professional setup. Uh, everything was was there. The panel, uh, Irwin Mitchell, uh, representatives uh, who I've known for lots of years now. Uh, and not just one person, uh, lots. Um, when we go to the to the do's and the balls, uh, you know, it's just like an extended family. It, it's it's really interesting to hear what what you say about the support groups, Ron. And and I know from my experiences in Newcastle and in in West Yorkshire that when you go to that first client meeting initially, there's a bit of resistance from the patient and the families to go into the support groups but we try as best we can to sort of delicately push them towards the support group to meet other patients meet Leah Helen Simon and Joanne because it's a it provides a vital service it's somewhere where you can share your experiences um, there are some people in the room I've I've often been to some meetings and there's a bit of anger there about what's happened and it's a good way of diffusing that so I don't know if um, both Simon and Michaela have got a lot of experience of this. What do you think is the one single benefit of going to a, a support group meeting, if there is just one benefit? For me, I I find that it, it is difficult sometimes to get people to come along to a support group because I think they perhaps have a vision that it, it's a bit like alcohol. Alcoholics Anonymous that you sit in a circle holding hands and uh, uh, but getting over that first hurdle is very difficult actually getting someone to come to the group when people come and they're relatively newly diagnosed they often come for themselves because they, they, they want to meet other people with this condition they want to learn from other people they want to see other people doing well if Ron was in my area and was and was coming to the messy meetings he would very much be my sort of go-to person when I've got somebody new coming into the room for the first time. I'd be directing them over to Ron because it, you know that it. So so Ron's journey will have changed from probably going to those meetings to get something for himself to now giving an awful lot back just by being in the room and somebody hearing how long it is since you were diagnosed and, and what you've managed to achieve throughout the time that you've been diagnosed, the, the the uplift that that will give someone who's just come from one of those consultations that you mentioned earlier, 
where somebody might have carelessly let slip what the average prognosis is and they suddenly see someone who's taken part in two or three half marathons since they were diagnosed several years ago that that is that is the uh, the, the the beauty of those of, of those groups for me thanks simon that that's really helpful michaela i'd absolutely agree with that and i think the other thing that i would add is when people come to the groups for the first time so often they say, I'm just overwhelmed. I don't know where to start. I don't know. You know, they're worried about so many things um, as well as worried about coming to the group and the welcome and the support. But just seeing people visibly relax and to get some of their fears addressed and just these people get it. You know, as lovely as the nurses and the doctors are or my friends who say, oh, my friend had cancer. These are people who really get it. You know, meso is very rare. Meso is work related. So as you say, there is that element of anger as well as shock. So it's it's good in so many ways. Um, and there's also a lot of humour and an incredible amount of good cake consumed. So those have got to be good things too. Yeah, as long as you're not doing the baking. Um, right. <laughs> Ron, I just, if we could just, dig a bit deeper into your treatment journey could you take us through you mentioned moments ago in the podcast that you'd been directed towards surgery can you just take us through your treatment journey today and and also let us know what what your next treatments are likely to be yes i was um put down for the boss 2 trial which is held in saint Bart's in london uh, and me and my sister actually went down for a few days, met the surgeon, had a look at the facilities, which are second to none, and done a bit sightseeing, uh, had a bit think about things and thought, yeah, I want it. The only way forward for me, get in there, get it out, uh, and then I'm up. up. Uh, and it was it all happened so quick. I got a cancellation in uh, the following March, uh, went down again on my own this time, uh, just when I have a sack uh, on my back, changed the clothes. I went in for a pint uh, to the local pub and I thought that's my last pint that I'm going to get before the op as a whole person. Uh, was so enjoyable. But then the reality hit uh, and the next morning, eight o'clock, I was in the theatre. Uh, and when I woke up, I had wires, pipes, drains, uh, lots of things sticking out. I was in agony as well. Uh, and then my niece actually got the train down from uh, Newcastle. And she she was the only one that saw us in that uh, position with everything, you know, the central line and uh, on morphine on tap. Uh, but within a short space of time, I got to the ward um, and then in a private ward after that. And I think the surgeon had a, a bit of a soft spot because he was from Newcastle as well. He said I had an infection and he took us off the ward and into a private room. And I'm sure I didn't have an infection. Uh, but Three days later, uh, 
when the, the surgeons were doing their rounds, they said, oh, you can go home. And I said, what, already? So they sent us out with 68 staples in me back uh, with a portable train. And I just jumped on the train uh, and got home. Ten days later, I went back down to get the train out, uh, the staples out. Um, but I was quite weak. I lost I lost a few stone in weight. Um, but then I, I recovered quite quickly, but just in very small steps. Uh, I thought I was really strong, but it, um, it showed that I, I was a mere mortal. Ron, when, when were you next able to have a pint after that? Uh, well, I, I was actually in a wheelchair and Denise pushed us to a local pub and she had really massive blisters on her hands. I remember that. <laughs> but it was bliss. I, I, bet it, I bet it was cheaper than that last pint that you had in London. No, uh, I, I didn't mind paying London prices. Thanks. Thanks for that, um, sharing that, Ron. What other trials and therapies have you had since you had the the operation? I've got by with um, paracetamol and ibuprofen, Ian, um, for four and a half years now. Uh, last year at this time, just before the Great North Run, uh, my scan showed up, pleural thickening, uh, and they said it was uh, it had returned, uh, albeit in a small form. Your claim, Ron, has been resolved, and as part of the settlement agreement that Erwin uh, Mitchell negotiated with the defendant, we've reserved your ability, should you need it, to access non-NHS treatments, although obviously there are treatments available on the NHS. How important was it to you that the settlement included provision to enable you to access private treatment if you needed to? Yeah, I'm going up to double immunotherapy and there's only one available on the NHS. So uh, without it, that's what that's where it'd be. So the second part is going to be paid for through the claim. Uh, and, you know, it's supposed to be the best available at the minute. Uh, Simon will probably uh, agree with that. Uh, and I've actually got me scheduled now and I'm starting in two weeks time. Uh, and I've put it off for so long now. Uh, the treatment. Uh, but now's the time to have it. I think it'd be great at this point just to, if we pause there and just get Simon's sort of technical input into immunotherapy treatments that are open to patients. Simon? Yeah, so in July of last year, we got access to two immunotherapy drugs used in combination. Um, as our first line of treatment for so someone who's just been diagnosed with mesothelioma and is about to start treatment, that would be the treatment of choice. Now, as long as that person is, is fit enough uh, and as long as they don't have any real worrying pre-existing inflammatory conditions or uh, really bad arthritis or um, like irritable bowel syndromes, colitis, things like that. Th those are things that oncologists would get very nervous about when using um, immunotherapy drugs, particularly the two immunotherapy drugs. Um, we have had access 
as a second line of treatment, so people who've had chemotherapy in the past, once they reach a point where the cancer is progressing further down the line, we have our ac access to just one of those immunotherapy drugs. And uh, we've, we've had that since uh, we were given permission to use that drug, which is called nivolumab, during um, the, the pandemic. And we can still use that as a second line of, um, of treatment for people who um, would have had chemotherapy prior to July of last year. Um, I think what is really important, um, really important work from the from the, the the law firms like Irwin Mitchell when they're settling cases like Ron's is getting what we would class as traditional compensation, but also getting that agreement that should somebody need treatments outside of the NHS, then the, the cost of those treatments um, will, will be met not from that initial pot of money because some of these treatments are so expensive that you could get your compensation and then be recommended a, a treatment outside of the NHS and you would quickly see that pot of money eroded paying for these treatments so having a, a separate agreement that the funding for that treatment comes um, additionally um, is important and there's some fantastic work going on not just in this country um, but across the globe and some of the oncologists that we have in this country who have a real special interest in mesothelioma, they're picking up on some of these smaller studies and seeing certain drugs which, you know, are, are probably a number of years away from coming to the NHS in terms of treating mesothelioma. But we can see that they potentially have a role to play. Um, so those drugs are th th those drugs are available um and and can be funded through um compensation uh that, that that you're recovering so if we if we sort of contrast ron what happened to you when you had to tell your daughter that you'd been diagnosed with mesothelioma and she was immediately thinking that the the prognosis was so so poor that you could succumb to the disease in a relatively short period hearing simon talking about those therapies and research that's going on that gives not just that gives you hope and gives family members hope that at some point there may be a way of either stopping this disease progressing i think we're a, a long way away from a, an actual cure so how do you feel about that ron that there are those trials going on out there that research that's being undertaken i think um looking back 10 years ago, uh, or even more recent than that, uh, there the wasn't options. You got base, basic chemo, I believe, uh, and then you, you just went. I actually seen me, um, well, shipyard labourer um, in, in these last weeks on this earth, uh, which wasn't a, a very pretty sight. Uh, and that you know, it hit home what was actually going to happen to me. Uh, luckily for me, I had the operation. Dave Waller, the surgeon, done a really good job. Uh, and when I had the chemo, it was mopped up. And, you know, as Simon said before, uh, I've, I've really went from strength to strength and people can't believe that I've got meso. And when they say it at the groups and things, they say, God, look at your skin. Look at, look at you. you look so well. 
uh, unfortunately, a lot of I've I've known a lot of met a lot of people through having Bezo, uh, and other people haven't been so lucky. I am one of the lucky ones, and I'm going to keep on fighting till the end. That's that's great, Ron. That you've got such a a positive attitude to the disease and how it's affected you. Ron, uh, when you go to the Reedley meeting and you you meet other um, patients who are living with mesothelioma, um, obviously everybody handles things differently and you you are quite unique. How do you find talking to people who have perhaps not got quite the same attitude at the moment that you have to the disease? How do you deal with that? And how do you help them come to terms with what's happened to them as individuals? Uh, when I go to, the, the, to meet new people, they think it's the end of the world, the same as I thought. Uh, end of holidays, end of going to family functions, end of normal life, as we know it. Uh, and, you know, you are restricted in certain things because uh, being a joiner, you know, I, I still do bits and bobs. Uh, me and Denise uh, built one summer house during lockdown. Um, but the strength, the core strength, isn't there anymore um, for basic sewing operations uh, and things. But I, I still can do bits and bobs. Um, but when people find out they can still go on holiday, especially, uh, they go, oh, you've been on holiday. I say, well, yeah, I go away a couple of times a year abroad and lots of little holders, weekends away, uh, camping in the camper van, intense even this year. It's, it's the thing I'll bore me probably. I think it's I, I think that's a real that'll be a real inspiration to to many people that they can see that you know with the with with the right support and the right treatment and the right attitude uh they can look ahead to achieving many of many of those things and and nobody wants to be diagnosed with this condition um but you you are where where you are and you've managed you've managed to do all you know all, all of those things in your personal life so that you maintain that quality of life but you've all you've also got involved in a lot of other things where you raise the profile of asbestos related diseases in particular mesothelioma and even doing something like this who would have thought a joiner from the Tyneside shipyards would be doing a podcast <laughs> just over it just uh, you know if people are willing to get involved in this it's great for raising awareness but it's also good for them personally as well to get in, involved in things that you know maybe they'd have never thought about doing yeah Michaela if you'd like to just jump in on some of the points that both Simon and, and Ron have made there thanks Ian Ron you're absolutely right you are unique and I think as you said earlier that it going back you know it was a real shock and really hard to adjust but I think what really strikes me about you is you did adjust and I don't mean to be sound negative but I'm also aware of there are many people who find that adjustment so difficult that actually they're too frightened to go on holiday or not to be near their doctor or their hospital or too frightened to go abroad or just frightened of not being able to breathe very easily and go to the supermarket 
And I think so much of what the support groups do, the meso nurses, I hope myself and the legal team at Owen Mitchell is actually build that confidence to say life is going to be different and doing those adjustments. And it might mean that you get someone else to do the garden or dare I say it, have a takeaway rather than waste energy cooking so that you can go on holiday or do the things that are important to you. Spend time with the grandchildren, go to your favourite place or even travel down to London for a pint of London pride. But that actually, you know, sometimes treatment isn't surgery or chemo or immunotherapy. Some people are not able to tolerate those. And the treatment can be right. How am I going to live differently because life is different and live as well as I can for as long as I can? Yeah, that, I mean, that's really powerful words, Michaela. Thank, thanks for that. Um, Ron, if I could just touch on how the love and support that your family have given you, how how's that impacted on you since the diagnosis? I have got a, a huge family and they all love our Ronnie, which is their male name. Our Ronnie, our Ronnie, that's what they say. Uh, and all those for never say die attitude. Um, when, I, when I go out for a walk with them quite recently, I've been a, on a camping trip. Uh, uh, we've got another one planned for a, a few weeks time where uh, there's 30 people all together. And I'll say, right, well, before we have something to eat or a drink, we're going for a walk. And it's not just a walk along the street. It's not just a walk up a hill. It's around the corner, around the bend, uh, a little bit further. Um, However, let's go. <clears throat> I'm never happy with them just doing a little bit. To the detriment of myself, mind, uh, sometimes I've got to rest for days afterwards. And if they do, um, they don't see as a, uh, as a fool, but I always push myself to the absolute limit and sometimes beyond. But uh, the family are all, all been fantastic. Um, they've accepted that I'm not the same as I used to be, but me myself, I've got to portray that I'm probably not as bad as what I am uh, at times. And, you know, uh, go out in pain, take a couple of tablets uh, and just go out and do it. And that's the way I'll always be. Michaela. Yeah, I think you're so right to admit, Ron. Um, and it, I imagine it's quite a lot of pressure, everyone, the great North Ron, and that you too have bad days and days where you have to recover from, you know, pushing yourself. And I think that's what it's all about for people living with meso, but also their family, their friends, and all the healthcare professionals involved, and even the solicitors, that actually we need to get that balance of where there is that bit of downtime, but also that active time that gives us energy, but it's it's all about balance, isn't it? Thanks, Michaela. Um, one thing I also think that we should, we should touch on in this podcast is the, the language that's used around cancer, and this is something that I'd really like to get Michaela's views and comments on about the importance of the language that's used by healthcare professionals and others when interacting with individuals who've been diagnosed with cancer. We tend to spend a lot of time talking about victims, 
and the fight against cancer and also referring to it as being a terminal condition. So I suppose not just Michaela, but also Simon, if I could get your views on the language that's used around cancer diagnosis. And also if Ron's got any comments, that would be great to hear. Michaela? I think Ron is a great example where the word suffering and victim are true, but actually Ron is living with me, so he's not suffering. He's living his life as best he can and doing what he can to work with the treatment, to work with his, uh, his surgeon, but also keeping life going with activities with his family, with the running. And that actually, if we say I'm suffering with, we're immediately putting ourselves down. So it's not about trying to lighten it or to push it under the carpet. It's just saying, do I want to live with me, though, or do I want to be dictated by it? Um, and to me, and I know many people will disagree, actually suffering and victim, true as they are, actually doesn't always help how we feel about ourselves. And the word terminal, we many, many people use it. And I know some people think, oh, well, you know, she's just being pedantic. But actually, to me, terminal is the end of a train line and that actually is life limiting because terminal often people think I'm going to die tomorrow or I am terminal. No, you're not. You're Simon or you're Ron or you're Ian. You know what I mean? That actually it's about identity and it's about living as well as we can, as long as we can. And I'll now get off my soapbox, Ian. <laughs> You're permanently on your soapbox, Michaela, as am I. Simon, if there's anything that you think you could comment on from your perspective as a yeah. MISO UK nurse. Yeah, I, I, I agree um, with, with Michaela. It's really important that we are careful in the language that we use. It's also important that we're open and honest. So I don't think we should shy away from the fact that we tell people that this is still to this day classed as an incurable condition. And I like to use that word incurable rather than terminal. Um, I think terminal to me conjures up images of someone in the very final stages of their life. It probably means slightly different things to, to, to other people, but I'm more comfortable comfortable saying the word incurable um, and there 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 are still sadly people who are diagnosed with this condition and who won't have many months ahead of them but it's very difficult to predict who those individuals are at the point of diagnosis and so I always like to think that the person sat in front of me when I'm talking to them about a new diagnosis of mesothelioma that they're going to be different to that and they're going to be someone who's more like Ron or some of the other uh, people who who we see um, living for, for many years and, and, and living a you know a, a, a good quality of life uh, with this condition as opposed to how it was perhaps even as short as 10 years ago, sometimes less, where we considered that when someone was diagnosed with mesothelioma, they were then from that point onwards dying from mesothelioma. Well, I think what, what Ron shows is that, is that actually from that point, he's now started living with 
mesothelioma is a big difference. Ron. Nice one, Simon. Uh, well, Michaela as well. Uh, I hate that word terminal. And I was, I was, um, when I was getting insurance for holidays, I was putting terminal cancer on and I was getting knocked back. And it was uh, Leah who said, you're not terminal, you're living with it. I went, am I? So I'm not terminal. She goes, no, not until somebody says uh, you've only got so long to live. That's when it, that's when uh, you're told uh, and that's when it will be. So Leah, Leah turned that round for me. Uh, and incurable at the moment uh, is probably the right the right thing to say. Okay, I just I just like to invite each of the guests in turn now just to give us their final thoughts about the some of the issues that we've discussed on. So if I could start with with Simon first. So for me, it's been a real pleasure uh, taking part in the podcast today. As soon as I saw uh, there was an opportunity to be involved and Ron uh, was um, taking part, I jumped at the opportunity uh, because for me, as someone who has a real interest um, in the Great North run um, and also because my working life is dedicated to supporting people with mesothelioma. Um, yeah, it, it, it kind of brings every, everything nicely together. Uh, and Ron's story is, is amazing that um, not only did he take part in the first Great North Run back in 1981, but he's taken part in, in every run since. And um, we've talked about how unique Ron is, um, but he's, he's one of um such such a small group now uh, of people who've taken part in every great north run do, do you know ron um how many of you um are, are still are still taking part i, I believe there's around about uh, 80 at the last count simon uh i haven't had an update of how many actually finished this year's run uh but i will be finding out in the coming weeks Brilliant. Thank you. Oh, thanks. It's, it's, it is. It's um, just a fantastic achievement. And I think summing up it, it shows that there are there are people who unfortunately are diagnosed with mesothelioma. And rather than seeing all of the negative aspects uh, and, and, and giving up um, because they think that this is the end of the line for them, that we see there are people who can take the treatments that are on offer and the support that's available um, and they can get on and, and, and live their life with this condition. Thank you, Simon. M Michaela, any final thoughts from you? Just echoing what Simon said, Ron, you just give out such great energy and you live with mesothelioma with humour with determination and thank you so much for taking part and also for all the awareness raising because that's such a big part of what we all do we all know that the uk sadly and rather shockingly has the highest rate of mesothelioma in the world and for a small island nation 
that's just appalling. So we all, you know, alongside living with it and sadly dying with it, we need to campaign. So, yeah, it's been really great to be part of it. Thank you. Ron, any final thoughts from you? Uh, I'd like to thank Erwin uh, Mitchell in particular for uh, the sponsorship and the, um, the coverage and making me feel like a, a million dollars. And my son's uh, about 500. Uh, he's run for uh, Miso directly and rides for Reedley. That, that's, so, that's great to hear that the effort that we all put in yesterday actually translates into some funds to help support groups and help help me so you can so i think it's really important now that everybody's listened to the podcast that if you do need any legal advice and support that you should contact a specialist solicitor like owen mitchell but also i think one of the biggest takeaways from this podcast for me is the importance of sharing with others your personal experience if you have received a cancer diagnosis and how it's impacted on your life to not just encourage individuals who've been diagnosed with cancer to talk about it but also for their family members to share those experiences ron um, could i encourage you if possible for you to say what you would say to somebody who'd only just been diagnosed with mesothelioma who came to the Reedley support group what words of encouragement would you give to them well it's hard to imagine for me looking back over five years and beyond that i would still be here and just done the great north run uh, and still supporting all the groups uh, as they've supported me it's been fantastic uh, i would advise everybody to seek help the support groups seek professional help uh, whether it's through the solicitors or um, through Miso UK uh, they're all fantastic and don't be put off. I think now would be a good point to bring matters to a sort of natural conclusion so first of all a big in fact huge thank you to Ron for taking part today and for being so open and honest about your diagnosis and journey and also about you being a, a beacon of light and offering hope and inspiration to others. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Michaela and Simon for really invaluable um, contributions from a professional perspective and from your own personal experiences. So um, thanks very much. And that's it for today. Uh, we hope that you found this podcast insightful. If you'd like to find out more about how we support our clients, then please visit our website at erwinmitchell.com. Thanks for listening to the Erwin Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then join us for our next episode. Stay safe. <laughs>